everything seems to be going this way. But then I'm always like, if it's going there, it's gotta, it's gotta come down at some point. So I'm always second guessing myself. But there's been no major challenges just yet. I mean, on the journey, I think getting sacked was my kind of lowest point because there's only so much I can talk about, but essentially I was sat in my car afterwards and I was like, hang on, what's, what's just happened? Like, am I gonna go home and tell my mum I've been sacked from a job? It doesn't make any sense. That was my lowest, lowest point. And I think that made me realise I don't want a job again. I want to set my own kind of economy and, and do my own thing. Today's episode of the I Love Monday podcast, we have the mortgage broker and fellow podcast host, uh, Shaz Ahmed. Welcome to the show. Say so, thanks for having me. How are you doing? Not bad, not bad. So let's get into it. Tell us where your journey began. My journey, my journey began. So I'm born and bred in, in South Wales, small town called Newport. Newport's like the slough of, of Wales. Like you don't go into Newport, you go past Newport. But yeah, born and bred in Newport. Mum and dad came over, obviously, like a lot of immigrant parents have. We used to have a corner shop back in the day. We used to live on top of that corner shop. So it was that kind of setup. Uh, went to uni, did media studies, media production. The worst degree ever, because didn't learn anything. And then I kind you of- just um, done all this setup. What's that, sorry? You should have done this at all. should have done this, exactly. This is my actual career. But um, yeah, did a degree that was really pointless and kind of lucked or chanced my way into financial services. Did you um, work in the corner shop? I'm, listen, if I said yes, I'd be lying. In the sense of, it was me. I got me, my brother, and my sister, right? I'm the middle child. So my brother was always more active and actually involved with the shop as in he wanted to work and help out. Yeah. I was more like, if I could get away with not doing anything, I wouldn't. So yeah, if they needed me, of course I'd be downstairs, but I'd rather not. Um, so did you never ever get told that you must do this shift or? Nah, I've been blessed with very like, my parents are really, I wouldn't say they're chill, but they're very supportive and cool. So it's always a case of do what makes you happy rather than do what we want you to. So everything is like, here's what we think. What do you think? And let's come to something that we, we all agree with. What kind of lessons did you learn from your parents being at the corner shop? Because it's a, it's a penny business. It's a tough business. It's a tough business. And then once you, what you realise is once the kind of, you know, the brands open, so Asda opens up down the road, or you know, Sainsbury's now opening a bigger store, suddenly your margins are gone and people go into those stores. So I learned that you know my dad worked very, very, very hard, put a lot of hours, for what was his very little return, and it's hindsight. So. Once we got rid of the shop and he did taxis, he was making more money randomly, even though you'd think having a shop as a kid is yeah. the ideal scenario. You've got your shop, have your sweets whenever you want, you know, get a, bar, get a Magnum chocolate bar whenever you want. But from a financial business perspective, I think the effort he was putting in versus the return probably wasn't great. And that's something I've learned that if you've got the work ethic, which I think a lot of brown people have, it's a case of applying it in the right places to get the return that you need. Um, why, why did your dad actually open the corner shop? Because over here, literally every corner, you see a Patel corner shop. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was his reasoning behind So that? I think part of it was my mum's sister, they had their own business, which was again, it wasn't a corner shop, it was more of a grocery shop, bigger. That was in Merthyr in the Valleys, uh, which is a very, very non-diverse place. But they had that, and I think it was a case of they helped him set it up. He wanted to do his own business. Before that, he was working like import export clothing. And what I learned from him doing that was he was kind of mixing with people that he didn't feel comfortable with, like shortcuts and little bits here and there. He's like, I'd rather not do that, just have my own business. Dodging custom tax. 
you know how it is. <laughs> okay, and then what um, what made you just not want to be involved? I think I for me it's it's always it's never about the money. So it wasn't a case of how much money can we make if we did this. Like it always help out, but it wasn't. I'm not. I've never been financially motivated. Like a lot of people like traveling. I see a lot of people and they want to travel four holidays a year. I couldn't care less. Maybe because when I was younger, our holidays were going to Pakistan and back. So I've not experienced the other side of traveling to Turkey. Or I mean, I've been on some, but not a lot. So you know, material things were never a thing. So it's always been about being happy and satisfied rather than how much money's in the bank or how many experiences can we have, which not, it's not a bad thing, but that's just me. It's quite interesting because I would say I'm not financially motivated, mm. um, but as a, when you own a business from the outside, everyone thinks you are financially motivated. Everyone thinks you live reason. a lavish lifestyle. <laughs> um, so what actually does motivate you? I think, so for me, one of the drivers is that, you know, one, I want to have the freedom to be creative so even when I was in a job, you know, I want to be able to express myself, have my ideas heard and actually work on those things, which you can do when you've got your own business. And also, I think we're here to serve. So people often say to me, Shav, why don't you invest in properties and have loads of, you know, have a massive portfolio? I, it does my head in. Like, I've, I've got two single lets and I'm probably going to sell them because it's not my skill set. Money being tied up for that long, I get it and I understand what people are doing, but for me, that's not how my mind works. I like serving, I like being that kind of function within people's other businesses and the result is quicker, you know. We get them the mortgage, three, six months, they're happy and they come back again. And that gives me more of an instant satisfaction. So how, how does being able to serve others, do you think, push you in your business? Um, look, who doesn't like, you know, being, having adulation? So when people come back and the feedback, of course, is like, you know, you're amazing. Why didn't we deal with you before? I think all the feedback, I'll be honest, is, one, is definitely a driver. I yeah. like having people come back and be wowed. And that makes me want to go again and again and again. But sometimes it is a problem because it means my standards are there. And I've still got staff. And if they're there, which is fine, that's maybe that's their maximum potential. But I'm like, why can't you be there? Because I can. Um, before you started Elan, what... what, what were you doing? How many times did you get sacked? How many times did I get sacked? So in my journey, I've been made redundant twice, and I've been sacked once. With the redundancies, the first time around, I was working in Virgin Media Technical Support. So that was basically turn it off, turn it on. Yeah, good job. We got made redundant. And again, both times I've been made redundant, the jobs have always been made, kept in the country, not offshore either. That's interesting. It's weird, but like, yeah, so that was that. It was fine, I was in uni. I didn't, it was, it was nothing. It was like, I'll find another job. Second time round, it was a bit different. I was doing mortgage advice for Barclays. So I would say Barclays were quite instrumental in my journey because they paid for my CMAP qualification. So CMAP, just in case no one knows, is a qualification you need to give mortgage advice, right? So Barclays paid for that, took three months in and out. They moved the jobs to Liverpool, of all places. That's not from you. It's like, four, I mean, South Wales is four hours. Okay, South Wales, yeah. And the thing is, it's weird because it's a call centre, and I'm sure the Scouse accent, no offence, is not the most attractive accent. Like, I'm sure Welsh is a better accent to hear on the phone. What do you think? Mm, debatable. <laughs> wow, okay. Well, but yeah, moved all to Liverpool. Now, what happened there was, they gave us six months gardening leave, right? Which for me was like, great, if six months getting paid to do pretty much nothing, or maybe set your foundations for the next step. 
But a lot of people were panicking. They were like, they've been there for 15, 12 years, and like, what are we going to do now? We're not employable. And I'm like, hang on. You're going to get a massive redundancy package, you've been there so long, and you've got this qualification that puts you on par with like solicitors and accountants. You'll be fine, <laughs> like, chill out. What I did is, in that break, I did take three months just to do nothing. But then I also set up with my brother-in-law and his business partner a gourmet burger restaurant in, uh, in Newport, in South Wales. Okay. And that, eventually I was doing side by side with mortgages. And that, that went pretty well. We were like award winning. Um, there was nothing else in Newport doing halal gourmet burgers. It was good. I would probably never work with family again. Like, and mm. maybe not in the food industry either. <laughs> Why? Which bit? Family. Family. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're, we're a family-run business as yeah. well, so it's, it's interesting to hear other I think, perspectives. I think the issue was, because at the time I was, I was redundant, so I had nothing to do. So the agreement was I would be the working partner. So I'd be there every single day, right? And then it, it, it does get in your head, like, hang on, I'm here all the time, but we're doing like this kind of profit split. I'm putting all the hours. I'm doing kind of work out the menus. I'm doing the social media. Did you get salary? Yeah, but not, it's just cash in hand salary, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know what they are. So it, it didn't feel right. And I think the other problem was eventually when I did get back into mortgages, I was doing both side by side. So I'd be nine to five-ish in the office and then like six to 11 in the burger restaurant. Something had to give. So both weren't working ideally. The other thing about a restaurant is it's unsocial hours. So you have to be there late at night. So you don't yeah. really have a life. And I didn't realise how, how personally I took things. So... I made all the menu, right? So I knew how to layer the burgers, what goes on top of what. But I was, I was not Gordon Ramsay, but in the kitchen, if the food didn't look right, I'd be like, you can't send that out. Or if they put the cucumbers on top of the lettuce when it should be the other way around, I'd be like, you can't send it. And I think for my own health, mental health, I had to get out of that place. Is it still running? It's still running, yeah. So they kept it, I sold my share back, okay. to, back to them. Um, do you want to give them a shout out? Yeah, yeah, Asif and Irfan, you know, thanks for the, uh, the business tips. <laughs> we still um, get on, it's no, it, there was no drama, it was just more like, guys, I can't be here anymore, so left, what do you want to do? Um, what did you learn from, apart from not, being, not wanting to work from family, but what did you learn in terms of business? So I learned that it's very important for me that um, staff or people you work with, unless they're financially invested, will never love the place or want to work as hard as you. Um, and it's a, it's a hard thing to grasp sometimes because you think, hang on, what, I've got these standards, why can't you meet it? But I, yeah, I think it, it's, it makes sense. You know, they're there for the salary, for the specific number of hours. Of course, you get people who want to work above and beyond, but they are, it's a job for them. Whereas for me, it was my baby. You know, I, I came up with everything, I did everything. So it took, took a while, but I realized, yeah, that they're just there for the money. They, and the other thing was, Profit comes last. The amount of overheads in a, in a food business, the, the little bit that's left over, <laughs> that's you know, at the very end. Um, the other thing I learned is obviously you can't please everyone. And especially, like I say, in food, it's quite subjective. You know, people will complain. When we started doing deliveries, we, I was like, guys, let's not do deliveries. It's going to just end in disaster. But we still went on Just Eat, went on delivery, went on Uber Eats. And business, like turnover went up. But the amount of complaints and feedback went up because people were like, oh, it's not this, it's not that. Because on deliveries, there's, there's more room for error because the driver could be late or you know, this could happen. Burgers get soggy and, and they're wrapping, yeah. you know, it's, it's those kind of things. Food gets cold. Yeah. Um, in, terms of, in terms of staff, I think you can get them to, not get them, you can empower them. Um, 
yeah. you can empower the staff to run through big walls and treat their business as their own mm. to a certain extent. Yeah. But I think you have to have values and systems in place. That's, yeah. that's what I think. I think what it was, you know, we weren't running like McDonald's. It was a ca mainly cash in hand kind of business. But yeah, I think you are right. Uh, and like we've had start like recently, we just had someone who started 1st of Feb, mm -hmm. 20th of Feb, he's left um, for whatever reasons. Yeah. And I think they're the, for me, they're the biggest headaches is not getting the, I think you can find the right staff, but it's take, it takes time to find the right person. In that time, that workload just comes onto you. So if you're on a burger place and one of the kitchen staff hasn't turned up or has decided to leave, you have to fill in. Yeah. And then you can't see from a slightly higher perspective or yeah. eye level like you want to. And the other thing as well, leading on from that point is, because it is a cash in hand type thing, they can call you just five minutes before and say, look, I can't come in today. What, what are you going to say? Do yeah. you know what I mean? One thing I did also learn, I think it's quite important as well, is for me, I learned that it was very important that I knew all the roles and how to do all the roles in that shop. So I could cook the burgers if I needed to. I could do the toppings, I could do the cleaning. Um, you know, I could do all the little bits because I didn't want to be in a position ever where if I was putting pressure on someone, they turn around and say, well, you try and do it. Because I could say, well, I, I have or I can do it. Yeah. The amount of pans I wash with these hands, right? <laughs> it's true, though. You do have to. Like, even here, I'm, I know property management. I know that accounts. I know how to list a house, to sell a house. Yeah. Same from the rental side. And because of that, you can, you're able to train them and give them tips and pointers. Whereas if you don't know, mm. um, you can't really give them them tips. No. Um, what did you do after you sold your share? So I was still, like I say, it was overlapping with the mortgage yeah. side of things, but it meant I could go all in on mortgages. Um, this is also when I got sacked from my, from my mortgage job. So I started with a specialist uh, mortgage company. I'll be honest, I was there for 11 months, not long. I wasn't very good <laughs> because I'd gone from Barclays where it was all residential mortgages, you know, first time home buyers, to HMOs, buy to lets, and I, I didn't know what a HMO was. Um, there was that element where I was, it was alien to me. And the second thing was, it was an employed role, but we were doing a lot of stuff out of hours as an expectation. So for example, they ran networking events, like in the evenings, once a month, you'd have to go, you'd have to set up. We wouldn't get paid for it, or we wouldn't get any time off and stuff. So it was kind of, I still had that employee mindset because that's what it was. But they were expecting things outside of that. Um, so yeah, got sacked from that under a cloud, which got settled, and it's all good. But then I joined a company self-employed, and I want to give a shout out. Morgan Stewart kind of took me under his wing, and he mentored me into kind of being what I am. One of the first things he did that was really good, I was like, look, Morgan, you know, I'll go with you, I'll go self-employed, I'll work my ass off. But you know, as, I, as well as I know, for the first three or six months, there's no money coming in. Could you give me a retainer and I'll pay it, I'll pay it to you back, £1,000 a month. And he said, I could, but I'm not going to, because if I did that, you will not be as hungry as you need to be. And I was like, okay. And I, I totally agree with him. I think if he didn't do that, I wouldn't be at every networking event, on social media, put myself out there to get the business in. So that was definitely something that I've learned that, yeah, if I ever take someone else on self-employed, that is how I'm going to do it. How long did it take for you to earn your first paycheck after you became self-employed? I was, I was pretty good, you know. I think I'm always good at sales. Is not a dirty word. I'm good at sales. I'm good at like lead generation. I'm good at getting people to want to work because I think 
where people speak to me on the phone or social media or even in person, they can see the energy is genuine. I'm not like trying to get a sale. It's yeah. like, what can I help you with? And let's crack on. I think about a month. Okay. It's yeah, so it wasn't, it's fine. I, I went all in. Like I say, I went to every single networking event. My Instagram name, Wes Shaz. That is because I was networking How so much. How did that come about? Because of networking. People were like, there was a like, little joke, you know, where's Shaz today? Where's Shaz? Because of all the stuff on socials. Yeah. So I just ran with it. Okay, it works well. I thought it was something to do with Where's Wally. That too. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you always want to go into do uh, a CMAP qualification? Nope. So uh, before Barclays, I was with Lloyds Bank and that was just a call, another call centre. But that was more like customer services. Hey, what's my balance? But there was a bit of sales on the add-on. So if you can entice them into like a credit card or a loan. And I really enjoyed that bit. You know, yeah. I enjoyed kind of cross-selling. The good thing was we weren't selling as such we were just passing one to someone else and i was one of the top five in in that building eventually but again you hit a ceiling didn't you You hit a ceiling of either someone has to die before you get promoted or like you know you won't knock any more money so so when when did you actually figure out that being a mortgage broker is the right so as i say man when i was at barclays i wasn't i wouldn't say i was not enjoying it but it was quite mundane i'll be honest it was just like same stuff every day and because you're not generating the business it wasn't like challenging or motivating you but you know if i'm honest one thing these big corporate companies are good at is trying to keep you excited so what they'll do is if they if, if you've got a good manager who can tell that you're getting a bit bored or not stimulated they'll be like hey Shaz, you know what for six months you can manage this team for six months you can do this like secondment right yeah or they'll have like a scheme where they're doing this kind of stuff so I was always involved with those schemes. I would say I'm what I call like an entrepreneur. So I'd be creative with someone else's money. <laughs> but you know, they knew what I was doing. Um, but in terms of when I got really into mortgages, I think joining Morgan and GPS was his company. Because I could see the results come in and quite quickly, I was like, yeah, let's, this is it. Let's just go all in. Because what's the worst that could happen? The worst is I'd move back to my parents. <laughs> um, you mentioned Morgan Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you... Or do you think it's important to have a mentor? Uh, Definitely. I think especially in a role where you're self-sufficient and you need... A good mentor should get you to where they are quicker than than it took them. And I definitely, like, you know, he's helped me along a lot. He was always like, I'm never going to force anything on you, but if you need help, I'm always open, my door's always open. And he's very laid back. So whereas I'm quite, quite um, in the moment, quite temperamental sometimes, he just always listen, take it in, and be like, okay, you can do this. So I think it's important to have a coach or a mentor who, who's kind of there where you want to be, but they should want to get you to there quicker without any ego or any issues. What, what advice would you give to someone who's looking for a mentor? I would say ask as many questions as you can before you kind of do anything with someone else. Um, figure out what the arrangement is, and also figure out what value you're giving them. So with, with GPS, Morgan's company, because I'm good at marketing and graphics and social media, I was doing a lot of their socials, which I don't, I don't mind. Because I, I enjoy it, it wasn't like, oh, it's, 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 a, it's a load on me, it's something I enjoyed. So it's a give and take, you know, what value can you provide them and what you're getting out of them in turn. Um, if, if you didn't have a mentor, mm-hmm. where do you think you would be? I think I would still, I think I'd still achieve what I'm achieving now, but maybe it'd take a bit longer. Because I think I would still do all the networking events, but Morgan opened a few doors and suggested events I should go to. I would still do social media. 
I'll be honest, social media, Morgan, I didn't care. So that, that's all on me. But I think it's more than networking. Why networking? Or why do you go networking? Is it simply just to get clients? People say that. I don't, I come the last time I went to an event and got a client there and then no one's going around. Hey, I need a mortgage broker. Yeah. It's not that. I think for me, it's a, it's a triple thing. It's a triple threat. You need to be networking online, networking in person, and then keeping visible on social media. And you've got to do all three at the same time. So often, if I go to events and I'm meeting a client, it's a client, it's someone who's, someone who's become my client because either someone's referred them to me or they've seen my Instagram. Then they'll become a client. Then I'll say, oh, by the way, there's an event next week in your area. I'm going to be there. Should we meet up there? So I meet people after they're a client. But in terms of why I go, I think one is to be visible because visibility is credibility, you know, believe it or not. Secondly, I think, I think it, it, it's a different journey, man. When, you, when, you first, when I first started networking anyway, I was there to kind of gain value from people. So who's speaking today? What can I learn? And who else is there? I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I'm at a point now where I'm going and maybe I'm speaking, or people are coming to me and asking me mortgage questions or this and that, which is fine. So I think I'm on the other end of that now, where now I'm kind of a person of interest because in, in the bubble, people know that I'm the person for mortgages. So how, how do you actually find time to do the networking, then to do networking online yeah. and engage with people, do your own podcast, mm -hmm. run your business? How do you find time? You've got to make time. So I did a post on this earlier, actually, on, on my Instagram, that a mortgage broker is only as good as the admin they've got behind them. So I've got two admin staff for now looking to get more. I couldn't be out swanning around in London. I couldn't be doing these events. Couldn't be doing all of this if there wasn't someone in the office keeping it all running along. Now, it's, you know, obviously, I guess I'm the face of it all, but the admin keep it running. They just don't want to be front and centre. So that's how I find time is I've got systems in place where things happen. Also, I, I have no problem working out of hours. It's a gift and a curse, right? Because I'm really responsive. Someone could message me now. My phone's over there. If I see it flashing, I'll probably stop the podcast. But I think you're the only person that when I message on Instagram before I get off the yeah. chat, it's seen. It's seen. Even, even today. But the problem with that is, right? I see a problem. I do it to everyone. So you might say, oh, how's he doing it? And is, he just, is it just for me? But I do it to everyone because... I don't have a to-do list of things I need to do. Even replying to messages, and if I had that on my list, it's, just, it's another task. Whereas most messages take two seconds to reply to. Yeah. Um, so I'm really responsive. Like if I get a message now, I'll probably turn the podcast off and reply. But it's a gift and a curse because you set bad expectations. Yeah. So what I've started doing now is I'll still work a bit in the evenings, but if I send an email, I'll schedule it in the morning. So slowly people kind of don't think I'm working out of hours. Um, we just make time. How do you actually, how do you have your downtime if you're working in the evening, or how do you like clear your mind? Listen, it's top secret, yeah. But top top secret, my work life balance is spot on. So my new office is like five minutes from my house, yeah. yeah so because it. of that, I get I get to the office by half eight eight o'clock. But that extra hour before nine, I get two hours worth of work done because no one's emailing me, no one's calling me, and then I'm done by half two three o'clock. Then I go to the gym, then I go home, one hour on my emails and just chill. So for me, that works, and it's not for everyone, but that's how I shift in my days. That's, that's, that's quite important, because to have that work-life balance, and I always say, um, and I tell my team as well, when I'm, if I'm in before nine, I'm doing something, and that's the time where you get most of your work done. That's where you get your deep work done. Yeah. And then after that, it's emails, speaking to your team, speaking mm -hmm. to clients, or whoever you need to speak to, 
and then in the, from two o'clock, that's when people get their afternoon slump. Whereas you're out in the gym. Yeah, but if I get a call from the gym, I'll still take it. Yeah, 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 you were taking calls here before. I was taking calls here, or see if I get an email in between sets, I'll just reply. Because most tasks don't take half an hour; they take five minutes at most. It's only when I've got a key in an application, but then my admin does that. So I think I've reached that happy medium where I want to be. People say, "Are you busy?" My answer is, "I'm as busy as I want to be." I could, I've got capacity for more, but if I start taking more, I'd be unhappy. So. Would you put yourself on a four-day week? Because that's a big thing on LinkedIn and everything at the moment. I would definitely put my staff on a four-day week. But me personally, no, because it's when it's your business, you, yeah. it's always on your mind. You yeah. can never switch. We, we can't go on four days. For me, yeah. it's even like seven days. If you're not, if I'm not doing something, or sometimes even on a Sunday, I'll schedule an email to go out on a yeah. Monday. But at least I've done 10 emails or whatever I need to do. Mm. Um, but I've seen um, people on LinkedIn, um, I think Jerry, one of the accountants, where... She's a, in her office now. There's no, there's no holiday hours. People just work when they want, as long as they meet the KPIs. That's basically it. And I'm trying to do something similar. I've said to, to Joe, who's kind of my admin, that if you want to work from home, if you want to take a holiday, whatever, I don't, don't really care. As long as the work gets done. If I get someone chasing, then maybe we'll have a chat. But as long as you're on top of your work, I don't really care what you do. So, what hours does uh, she do? Officially, it's um, 10 till 5, Monday to Friday. But a lot of that is from home, or I mean, she won't do weekends. But yeah, it's just that's the kind of average hours. Do you think that works? It does. Yeah. It's interesting because for a estate agency, I find that a bit difficult for it to work because we're always centered around visiting our clients. I think if it's on the phone yeah. or um, Zoom calls, it's easy to do. But because we have to go physically to the property, mm. and then that doesn't always take half an hour. Yeah. Sometimes that takes an hour, sometimes it takes 10 minutes. It's a bit more difficult. I can imagine. Yeah, I think with, with what she does, half of the job is data entry, and then the other half is emails chasing back and forth. So, yeah, those hours are ideal for that. Okay. Um, in terms of going forward in your business, what's the next step? So, the next step is, is growing the team. So, we've been, so my business, Elan Property Finance, set up since August. Um, I've really taken on my first self employed broker. I want to take on more, but really slowly, there's no rush. <laughs> like, you know, you want to have the right people. Um, I want to get more admin on board. I think, although I'm happy being as busy as I am, because I'm putting myself out there quite a lot, you know, there's, I'm doing so many things, there is business being generated, whether I like it or not. So I need, I've got more capacity to, get, to take on and give to the admin, but I need more admin yeah. because, yeah, we've got, we're busy. <laughs> um, sorry, I should have asked you before. Why did you start? Um, um, so I think it's it's hard to keep good brokers, right? So I was on a self-employed like commission model, and the industry standard is like seventy thirty in my favour. I'll be honest with you, man. Look, it's it's not about the money, but it kind of is as well. So when you're starting off, let's say you you're doing three thousand pounds a month. And you're giving 30% away. That, that kind of is okay, right? But then when you're doing £10,000 a month and you're giving £3,000 away, sometimes eventually you think, well, that's a bit, what am I giving that away for? So that was, that was part of it. I'll be completely truthful. That was part of it. But secondly, I wanted to have my own brand and my own kind of imprint where some of the things maybe that I didn't think GPS were doing so well, I could start, and start from scratch and do properly myself. Those are the two main reasons, really. Uh, what difference have, has 
Or what difference have you had having your own brand? So a lot of it is down to the back-end processes and systems. So like CRMs, you know, there's ones that are built for mortgage brokers and there's ones that are quite generic. So we've got one that's just mortgage-specific. You know, you can trigger alerts when things are renewing. You can tr- kind of send mail shots and all this kind of stuff all within that system. It's not amazing. It's not perfect, but nothing is. But that's great. But what, what has changed? You know, what's also changed, actually, is networking events. Because I remember I used to go to some. And like, I'm not a, I don't go out and push myself, be like, hey, it's my business card. I never do that. But when people say, oh, what do you do on Mortgage Broker, GPS Financial? Oh, is that your business? No, no, it's not. And then they, they slightly look down, down on you. It's like, you know, the service is a service. But now it's different because when you tell them you own the business, suddenly they think you're a big shot. I just think that's a silly Oh, you're a big thing. shot. I'm a big shot, <laughs> in my head. But yeah, that's been the change is perception. It's, and that is purely is perception. Um, that's quite interesting, actually. But I think people, people have this fascination of wanting to talk to a business owner. It's the same as when, again, it's different now, and, you know, touch wood or whatever this is, that I'm at a stage where people know who I am to to a certain degree, so it's fine, right? But when I was starting off, hey, what do you do? I'm a mortgage broker. Okay, do you invest yourself? How many properties do you got? And again, once you say, I haven't, or got one or two, they don't really want to discuss it with you. But my argument to that has always been, and still is, is that investing in property versus arranging the finance is a completely different skill set, you know? Like, and I use football managers as an example, like Alex Ferguson was an okay footballer, but he's not, he wasn't the best, but he managed, he's the best manager. So it's a different skill set. And if I was a prolific investor, I wouldn't have time to do mortgage broking. So that kind of attitude that a lot of investors have, a lot of the old school investors, it doesn't make sense. Your broker doesn't need to be an investor because it's, they don't, it's a different part of, of skill. Let's talk social media. Um... Why have you put yourself out there so much on social media? Because there's hundreds and thousands of other people doing the exact same thing that I do. So why would someone want to use me versus the next person? Um, and geographically, you know, if someone's in Newcastle, I'm in South Wales, the best way to reach them is through an online channel, which is social media makes the world closer. So that's the other reason as well. Um, and it's to show my expertise and get things out of my system sometimes. like. I get really annoyed with some mortgage brokers, the way they promote themselves. So if I can do a post that either takes a piss a little bit or explains things better in my own way, then, then why not? Um, when did you first decide that, okay, I'm going to push myself on social media? I'm going to give credit to, to Mr. Ted Singh for this. So Ted has always been big on his socials. And I had an Instagram account, which I wasn't really using. And he was like, Shaz, you, know, you need to because you've got all this knowledge, you know, you know what you're doing. And if you don't, like you say, what's separating you from every other broker in the, in the country? And then you decided the brand where Shaz, and yeah. then you decided to do the podcast. So the podcast came about because there was a period in, before lockdown, so I guess 2020-ish, I was on, I was on like 15 podcasts in 12 months. So I'd done all the circuit and there's, no, there's nowhere else to go, right? But I was like, I've still got all this... Con- one, I've had all these amazing conversations. Two, I'm networking like hell, so I'm meeting all these amazing people. So why not start my own? Because it's, you know, you get a shared audience, but you get extra people who you yeah. haven't looked or haven't heard your voice. Um, and yeah, if people are telling me that I've got these things that I can share, then why not podcast? And like I said, I'm into Gary Vee, I'm into all these people, so they all say the same thing. 
Um, and as long as I can keep it agenda free and sales pitch free, then you know it's it's a genuine effort to get value across. So how has the change in business been for you since your first podcast to your most recent one? Your most recent one is quite good actually. With Shivani, yeah. yeah. So I've been I've been fortunate that um, through networking and through social media and all the whole trifecta, right? One is some of my clients. I've got a big voice on social media. So Ted, Alfred, Charlotte Edwards, how, however through Fortune, they're also quite big on social, so they always shout me out. I can get them as guests. They can get me other people as guests who are in their networks. So I've managed to grow the guest list and the guests are getting bigger and bigger. And I've managed to mix up property people with non-property people like, like Shivani, for example, to have you know, really good conversations around like I said, no one's selling anything. So you know, like you have like TV show like Jonathan Ross, and you know, Brad Pitt comes on because his new film's out, and he's promoting the film. That's not the same with the podcast. People aren't coming on to promote anything. It's just to have a chat. Yeah, and I think that's the best way. I feel that as well. Actually, is better to have a chat rather than right now you're selling your mortgages. I'm selling the properties. Otherwise, yeah. if someone's not interested in them too, they're not. They're just going to switch off. They're going to switch off. Yeah, yeah. I mean. You know, hopefully what we're chatting about, there's a lot of shared, sorry, there's a lot of like skills and things that they could transfer into different fields. It's not about property or mortgages because it's easy to buy a house. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, if you've got money. Speak yeah. to you, speak to me. Exactly. And Basically. then done and dusted. Yeah. Um, in terms of your, um, in terms of your social media engagement, um, you're always commenting and you're always liking other people's what does that do for you because i think business owners it's it's not just about putting a post out i think there's a lot more to that in social media and we have to yeah. learn it on the job yeah, essentially yeah. so i think and this 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 kind of just i want to say I, i've got a, few, a lot of fake accounts right and the problem with the fake accounts everyone else who has a fake account always says i'll never dm you first but for me i will dm you because I, that's how i talk to people i will be like hey How's it going? So yeah, I engage a lot. I probably comment, engage more than I post. People say to me all the time, oh, I see you everywhere, you're posting all the time. I'm not, I post three times a week, tops. I want a fact check. Have a check, have a check. I think three times a week, prob at most. On right? Instagram, yeah. Do it now, do it now. And, um, but I feel like I'm omnipresent because I get tagged in a lot of things or I'll be in someone else's story or someone else's pictures. So, you check, he's checking now, he's checking. So, your last post was today. Today, but it says second of Feb. That's because I've pinned it. Okay, you got seventeenth of Feb. First mm -hmm. of August. Oh, no, the these pins. are your uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. collaborative ones. Six hours ago. Okay, that was today's one. Then four days ago. Then five days ago. Mm -hmm. And then before then that. Five days ago again. But they're your podcast ones. I think your podcast ones you're probably pushed out. Well, we are because they obviously for the launch, but I don't post that often. Twenty first Feb. Yeah, fair enough. But because it's not as often as as, as it looks like. Yeah. yeah, it's because I'm in other people's stories, I'm in other people's photos, and that works well for me because it's less pressure on me. If you see me at a networking event, we've been to yeah. one before. I'm not the person going. Let's take a photo. If someone says let's get a photo, I'll, of course I'll oblige. But I don't have that where I want to promote everything. Not, not everything needs to be on social media. Yeah. And I don't want the pressure. Like, you've got some people who have, like, a, you know, Wednesday wins and tips on a Thursday. I don't want that pressure of having this on every Wednesday, sharing a win. 
Like, what if you have a win on a Thursday? You're not going to share it till the week yeah. after. Or every Thursday, I'm going to go on a live, in a half an hour live to do things happen in life. You can't just. I don't want to be in that position. So again, social media is manageable. The only thing I'm finding right now is when I'm swanning away to London for network <laughs> events, or I was at the BBC studios the other week, and all this kind of stuff. Then I feel like I should put some finance tips out because that is the reason people follow me. So we've had to do finance. But from an engagement point of view, um, I find that the non-finance, the kind of lifestyle posts, they definitely do better than the finance posts. But I think both go hand in hand. Why did you get invited to BBC and how? BBC Asia Network, listen, BBC Asia Network, shout out. Um, so they Instagrammed me for a show they were doing called, well, they got a show called The Everyday Hustle with Sonia Barlow. And they were doing like a series on the cost of living crisis. And they wanted me to talk about mortgages. But it was good. I'm glad it was that. And it wasn't an interview because I'd crumble on that. But if it was all about mortgages, it was... Like, about. It was fine. We spoke about 45 minutes to an hour. And they edited it down. And I've had some good feedback already. So it's definitely worth doing it. And again, that's all because of social media. They would not know who I am without Instagram. Do you think social media is now a must for any business, especially a service business? Yes. Yes and yes. I think for services business, yes. Not for every business. Like... Some of my biggest property business clients, they're not even on Instagram because they don't need to be. Yeah, yeah. It's only if you're raising money. I think if there's an intent or a purpose at the end of it, yes. And that means you're offering coaching or you're trying to raise finance or you're offering a service. If you are completely financially free and the deals are coming your way, you don't need social, you don't need socials. Um, to be honest, yeah, property investor generally they don't need socials because they again have a lot of deals coming to them. I think a lot of them like to, like for example, Sean, mm-hmm. he has socials and he's doing he's doing really good at the moment yeah. on his socials. TJ again socials, Napa socials. But with TJ and Napa, they also they also have their courses that they sell. And they're also trying to impact other people. Yeah, and what what I'm good at, because I'm because again I'm in the sales business, I'm good at spotting a sales funnel a mile away, right? So if Sean, or if you, for example, if next week you started posting about a series on how to be a letting agent, I knew that the week after you're going to start a course about how to be a letting agent, so I'm really good at spotting sales yeah. funnels, and I wish people were more transparent. If you're going to sell something, give the value first. In essence, get permission. You know, give out all the value, and then if someone wants to work with you, they will. Okay, it's quite interesting, but I think a lot of people do... There are a lot of courses now. It's too many courses, because it's easier to make money training someone than it is to actually do the thing yourself and i think people need to be careful especially in property um there's a lot of buzzwords like no money down and, and all this kind of stuff which a isn't possible or two is not the presented the way it actually is so if it's no money down it means it's probably someone else's money someone some money changes hands right yeah so things like that you've got to be really really careful but then the good thing with socials is you can do more due diligence you can ask for feedback you can try and ask other people about so and so and eventually you get your answers. I had someone come to me and say they spent 12 grand on a property course. Okay. And all they learned was rent to rent. And even that wasn't, they didn't learn how to do it properly. So I gave them better, better tips than, than the than property course. There's two things. I think one is, I don't think any of these course educators wake up and say, we're going to scam someone today. What they probably get wrong is they'll, they'll teach what they know, but there's no real after service or customer care. So there's no kind of accountability on, is this person actually going to be successful? But the second thing is, if you're going to go on a course and you pay 12 grand, it's, doing the course isn't going to make you successful. You have to then take the action off the back of it. So 
if on the course it says you've got to make 100 phone calls, make 100 phone calls, you know, like, yeah. you've got to do the doing, you can't just expect results. I think doing the course is the easy part. The hard part for both the person doing the course and the, the mentor is actually following up, seeing how the mentee is doing. Yeah. To someone has to take about accountability. Yeah. Um, that's the difficult part. It's similar to studies, you know, if you go to uni, so I did media studies. I'm you not, regret it? In hindsight, I would have chosen something, something a bit more relevant, <laughs> but, or maybe not even gone. I, don't, I didn't need university to be what I am today. But um, I didn't even enjoy university, I'll be honest. It was, it was, the, it was a drag. I didn't live, um, so I didn't live far enough to, to live there. So I didn't have that experience either. And what happened was after the end of year one, my, my best friend at the time, he got a girlfriend, right? So I would pick him Spent up. Spent all his time with her. Basically, but even, even worse, like I would pick him up, you know, cause I drove, he didn't. And um, we'd get to university, obviously the, we'd get there half an hour early. So I'd expect him to be chilling with me for half an hour. But, oh no, I'm just gonna go see, see Jane now. I'm like, what do you want me to do then? He's like, oh, well, I'll meet you in class. So yeah, things like that. That was just, I mean, I was young then. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think university is good if you know exactly what you're doing and if you require uni for it. Lawyers, solicitors, accountants. Yeah. Yeah. Even accountant, you don't need uni now. You don't? No, because you can just go um, into an accounting firm mm -hmm. who give you a degree, apprenticeship, or they give you a degree, or they'll give you the ACCA or CMA qualification. Yeah. So you don't need a degree. I studied accounting. Okay. Um, but if I knew the other options, or there weren't them options at that time, but if yeah. I didn't know, I wouldn't go. It's different though. I think, you know, with my parents, again, my parents and my parents were happy for me to, to study any topic I wanted, but they definitely were like, look, we, sh we think you should go to university. So that's something that was expected. But I think going forward, I think it changes generation on generation. But is that because, do you think that's because they're Asian and generally Asian parents push? Education, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's it's like they talk about the American dream, it's the British dream, isn't it? You get yeah. you, you study, you become a doctor, solicitor, accountant. Like I say, I think attitudes are changing because they can see they can see me as a proof of concept of not you know. But that is the expectation, or that was the expectation back then. Okay, I think I think a lot of Asian parents just push their kids to go to university because they didn't have the education. Yeah, well, we're their investment. You know, they've traveled, yeah. they've left their homeland for us. For us. And they want to return on that investment one way or the other. But if we can show them that maybe the non-traditional methods also work, then that's also fine, right? Yeah, of course. Um, would you say you're successful? A success, I think, is, is very uh, subjective. Um, I personally think I'm successful in that I've got complete peace of mind. You know, we, I don't... I can like I can go to a restaurant. I'm gonna I can shop without worrying about how much it's costing. Um, I can be here and not worry about deals going across. I'm not my mental health is better than it used to be before. Um, so in, in that respect, I personally, from my personal kind of uh, KPIs, yeah, I'm successful. I guess. So what, what would you say is success for you? Peace of mind. Peace. I think the the word the kind of the phrase that comes to me is peace of mind. So not having to worry about the bills. Not having to worry about work, you know, not having to worry about pipelines, and essentially not living like month to month. And I think with the cost of living and all this stuff that it genuinely is happening, it, it is worrying for a lot of people. Um, like, imagine you're, you're in a single income family, you know, 30 yeah. grand, and you're on 35 grand a year even. 
that's not enough to live at the moment, so what are you going to do? And then this is it, I remember when I was employed as a mortgage broker and I was earning 24k. If I was still in that role, I wouldn't be here today like that. It's not sustainable, so yeah, I think peace of mind is in this climate, definitely. So how does, how does someone achieve that? Achieve peace of mind? Because it's not through sheer hard work. You've got, to, you've, got to, you've got to take the opportunities that you get. So I went through a year where my mantra you know, with my friends was, I'm not going to say no to anything. So if someone says, let's do a podcast. Someone says, come to this event. Yeah. Like, what was the craziest thing you said yes to? Uh, nothing crazy. I think I, it was traveling really, even going to Manchester, which is like four hours away for a podcast that lasted an hour and I traveled back. But again, it's free advertising. Why not? Yeah. I'm being a bit more selective now with my time. Also, thank you for coming here. Absolutely. International. I'm from Wales, man. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think you've got to take the opportunities that come to you. You've got to be intentional. Like, we talk about networking, right? In London, in Birmingham, where I go a lot, there's, there's a lot of events. Yes, you can go to every event, but after a short amount of time, you've got to be selective and intentional with those events. Like, which ones do you want to go to? Which ones are giving you a better return on investment? That's not just money, it's time as well, isn't it? You know, some events, you'll see the same people month after month who are doing no, no deals, they just want to go and be part of the community. Is that benefiting you in any way? Probably not. Do you know what I mean? You've got to be very intentional with your time. I think that is also important is time management because there are some people or some events or some kind of situations that are just a drain on your energy and your time yeah. and you want to avoid those. That's, that's quite interesting. But it's interesting because everyone has a different version of success. Some mm -hmm. people's version of success is their bank balance. Mm -hmm. uh, some people is peace of mind, some people's freedom of time or freedom of yeah. money, which is similar to yours as well. Because mm -hmm. like you said, you don't have to worry about bills, you can go to a restaurant, go to Nusra. Which I don't do, that's the thing though. 200 quid a steak. I wish I had the time to do those things, you know what I mean? But yeah, it's a peace of mind and, and being able to sleep at night, man, knowing that you've not wronged anyone. You know, you don't owe anyone anything. There's no, there's no emails I've left unanswered because I've yeah. done my to-do list. And it's just having that. I know that's quite short-sighted as well. It's quite a short time span, but that's what it is for me. What, what would you say your difficult moments in business have been? I think difficult moments, Matt. I mean, things we've only been set up since August. And touch wood, you know, it's all been going well. I know these things don't matter, but they also do matter. It's like awards, nominations, and things like that. You know, everything seems to be going this way. But then I'm always like, if it's going there, it's got to it's got to come down at some point. So I'm always second guessing myself. But there's been no major challenges just yet. I mean, on the journey, I think getting sacked was my kind of lowest point because there's only so much I can talk about. But eventually, essentially, I was sat in my car afterwards and I was like, hang on, what's what's just happened? Like, I'm not gonna go home and tell my mum I've been sacked from a job. It doesn't make any sense. That was my lowest lowest point. And I think that made me realise I don't want a job again. I want to set my own kind of economy and, and do my own thing. You know, in were you working in Wales at the time? Well? Yes, always in Wales. Um, <clears throat> how's, I've been Wales twice, but both North Wales. It's not a That's not really place. Wales, man. That's, that's basically Liverpool. No, no, it's Wales. <laughs> Snowden is Wales. Snowden, yeah. Uh, no, we went up Snowden, so I camped as Wales. Um, there's not much diversity there. There is where we are. So we're in South Wales. So I'm in Newport. Uh, Capital City, Cardiff is 15 minutes away. 
I would say, because people ask me this, Wales is multicultural, but not very diverse, in the sense that there's not a lot of mixing of the cultures, which is interesting to me. So, for example, the Indians don't really mix with the Pakistanis. Um, you've got a Gujarati community in their own little bubble. You know, and then you've got the Europeans, the Romanians, but everyone is segmented. So it's very multicultural, but not very diverse. Um, how did you find that growing up? It's all right. I mean, I've, you know, I've always been someone who get along with most yeah. people, so I'm quite a people person. Um, I'll share, listen, I'm going to share this with you, my first experience of racism, but you can't use it as clickbait, okay? This is like, because it has happened already. So um, you've got that part of Wales, which is South Wales, right? And that's quite townish and central. You've got North Wales, which is basically Liverpool. It's not really Wales. Then you've got the valleys, which are like very old school, yeah? And I remember, <laughs> so I told my cousins I had a shop. And I used to go, going to their shop was basically my school holidays. I'd be just staying in their shop for a week. And um, I remember I went there, this was before high school, so I must have been about 10 or 11-ish. And I went to rent a, uh, rent a video from the shop across the road. And I saw, I said I'm from the shop, and I saw what they wrote down. I went back and I told my, my sister, I was a budgie, you know. They, they, she goes, did, they, did you tell them where you came from? I was like, yeah, yeah, I said, from the shop. And they wrote, they wrote the word Packy. And she flipped. I remember, because that was the first time I came across it, I didn't know what it meant. She flipped, she went over there, she had a proper row with them. I remember the guy was shaking, he's like, oh, but... And then she told me, she had to go with me, she's like, listen, you can't let people speak to you. I was like, but I've, nev I've never come across that word. But I think for them, it was more of a common thing, because the valleys are not diverse at all. Yeah. They weren't back then. But for me, I was like, <laughs> what's just happening? And I also remember, above my name, there was a Chinese chip shop, and they wrote, they wrote an offensive word for the Chinese people as well. So I think that's more about them as a people than, than anything to do. But I, I do think that the older generations, not just British, but probably everywhere, they are generally a bit more stereo, stereotypical just because they haven't been exposed they haven't. to different cultures. Like London now, we're exposed to yeah. all the different cultures you can probably think of. We go to networking events, how many different cultures are there? That's it. But it we don't and ages as well. But we don't even think that, oh, this person is this, this person is that. Yeah. It's just, now we just see each, each other as people. That's it, and it's, I think that's how it should be because culture and age, you know, I know there's an investor, actually, 17 year old, with some events. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's going to be a billionaire one day because yeah, he's, yeah. Like, he's putting himself out there, speaking to all the right people, making an effort. And when I see him, his age isn't the first thing I look at, it's what, you know, net, let's network talk about property. So, yeah, age, culture, it shouldn't be and it isn't a barrier to being successful. He. Actually, he's been going to quite a few. Even on Instagram, he's been posting quite a few. Yeah. And he did one recently. He did a post recently. I don't know if you saw it. He said he's given out 100 business cards. Only one person followed up with him. This lady yeah. called Gurinder, yeah. Yeah, which I found and quite interesting. Because people probably do, do um, underestimate him. Because, you know, in, in the nicest way right now, what is he offering, for example? But what they Nothing. don't know is yeah. he could be offering his time. He could be really good at social media. Like, you, you have no idea. And that's the thing about networking is you don't know who knows what, you don't know who they know. Like he could, he could be connected to the wealthiest people in, in England, yeah. who knows? His, his family could be, yeah. his family could be the ones who've encouraged him to go on network. Absolutely, you have no idea, yeah. until you ask those questions and treat him with respect. No, it's true, it's true. Um, in, in terms of racism in the workplace, have you felt any or have you had any? Nah, my, my thought on this is, that I don't think it happens, but I think what does happen is, especially about my employment during normally is call centres, so it's different, but 
there's always these ceilings you'll hit, right? Where whether it's financial or just enjoying your job. And I think as as minorities, whichever it is, whatever privilege you haven't got, you've always got to work like 10, 15% harder than everyone else anyway. Yeah. But but we do because we're used to that work ethic. You know, I like I would never take a day off work. I haven't got a dog, but if I did, if my dog died, that's not a reason to take a day off work. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. you know, people do. So I think we've got that work ethic and that mindset that we work a lot harder because we kind of have to, but I've not felt any racism now. What would you say, what would you give someone, or what three tips would you give someone who wants to start a business? To start a business, I would say one is network your face off. So get, initially go to, go to a lot of events, figure out which one fits your personality, which people are there that you can connect with, find your tribe, you know, find the people you want to connect with and eventually be a bit more intentional and a bit more selective. So yeah, definitely networking. I think, um, I'm just gonna say the trifecta, so then it's social media, you know, build a presence. It's not for everyone. Like, I don't, I don't like taking pictures, right? You don't believe, people don't believe me. But like I say, I'm never at events with a selfie. If someone wants a picture, we'll take one. But you can still be on social media without showing your face. Show your value, show what you're offering and, and you know, let them be the judge. And it's social media is important because it's, it is free advertising. But what I would say on the other hand is don't rely on socials because if tomorrow Instagram shut your account and, that's, and your business relies on that, it's not a really good business yeah, it's model. It's like someone shutting down your shop. Yeah, and you don't want that. You, know, you don't, don't rely on the platform, basically. Um, and the third thing for anyone, even if they're not doing business, is, you know, and I hear this online, is essentially live like you're poor. You know, live well below what you're earning. Because what you don't want to be in a position, and it's happened to me, and I'm getting, I'm kind of curbing it a little bit, is if you're on 24 grand a year, and now you're on 100 grand a year, live like you're on 24. You don't want to get used to that income, because that could drop. But you know, live, live like well below your means. I think the third one is really important because it's easy to, it's easy for someone to sit down and saying, my pipeline is 100 grand, so I can spend my pipeline. And all of a sudden, one deal doesn't go through, or yeah. the next few months are all the these deals go through. Next few months are with the dry. business we're in, that could happen. I, I remember so over Christmas just now. Obviously, never had the money, so I can't say I lost it. But there was twenty grand's worth of uh, fees from lenders that didn't come through because deals fall apart. But had I been spending that money or kind of you know earmarking it for the reasons, then I'd be screwed. But you've got to live within your means because you've if you've done it already then you can live there and everything else is a luxury, reinvest that in your business. Can you go to networking if you're an introvert? Yes. You know what I do? I, I share this tip with everyone. If you're an introvert like me, I call it pre-networking. I think, I think I'm, I'm going to say I invented pre-networking. So if we use, let's we use pre-performance as an example, yeah? They, they always on social media saying who's bought a ticket, you know, thanks for coming, blah, blah. In the day of social media in 2023, with networking events, you will know who's going. You will know people are going to an event before they go there. Yeah? So inbox them. Hey, you know Jack, 24. I can see you're going to this event next week. So am I. What do you do? This is what I do. Blah blah blah. Do that to five, ten people. By the time you get there, you know ten people, and it's a lot less anxious and anxiety because you know people there. That's my main tip for more introverts. Yeah. That's interesting because for peak performance. I didn't inbox anyone, but I knew but we kind spoke, of like going. we know where you were going. Yeah, and yeah, it's just breaking. Like I'm not you good break at breaking the ice. ice. I'm terrible at breaking the ice. Yeah, like, how do you break the ice? 
I don't. I let other people. I, I, if someone else can do the intro for me, amazing. That saves my. But me having to go to someone that I don't know and be like, "Hi, I'm Shaz. What, you know, what do you do?" I I can't do it. But if someone else just says, "This Shaz is amazing, cool. Like, that's amazing." But doing that pre-networking, breaking that ice online, it just makes it so much easier for me anyway in person. I think that's like it. And then what also happens, and it happened a lot in peak performance. Obviously, we briefly spoke on Instagram before, then we met, then someone that knows me or someone that knows you, yeah. and then all of a sudden you've got a group of 10 people and you've met And everyone kind of knows people. everyone. And yeah. The other thing as well is I think is also to find a role that you can do. So what I used to do a lot of, and I still do it now because I'm a hype man, is let's say we go to an event. Hey man, who are you looking for? I'm looking for an accountant today. You know what? This guy's an accountant. Have a chat with him. You yeah. become like the connector of people. And it improves your reputation as well. Because, oh, you must know everyone because you're kind of connected to someone. Yeah, so I did that with Craig because Craig manages, or Property Apprentice on Instagram, but Craig manages HMOs in Medway in Kent. Yeah. And then some lady approached me, or we were just talking, I think me and Cameron. I don't know if you know Cameron. Yeah, um, I know Cameron. <laughs> he's just around the corner as well. Is it? Yeah, he's in Paul. Um, so Cameron, oh, this lady was talking about, she wanted to get into HMOs in Kent. And she goes, the only place really for HMOs in Kent is Medway. So I said, Craig is the person to go to, so I put them together. You, you were the connector. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think, well, as an agent, that's my role really, isn't it? Yes, you're going to business together. as well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so I think within business, it's easy for me to put people yeah. together. And you know, the other thing as well is I'm quite, like, I'm quite anti-lead gen. So like, say if I go to a meeting with another broker, for example, and some, someone's like, hey, I need some help in finance. I'm always like speak to this guy because he's a mortgage broker. Like, so it's it's good to be given, I think, because there's the market is so big. There's you know there's so many brokers probably on the street, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many agents on the street. Everyone's busy. No one's struggling. So the market is massive, um, and the world is abundant. I always say to like a few of my broker friends, like we could post the same video with the same content, but because of our delivery, half the people will go with you, half will go with me, and that's just how it is. So there's no it's good to be that rather than being really competitive and bitchy and, and because you end up eating your weight yourself, if anything. But if you're kind of giving and gracious, it works better for you. You and Sam Norris seem to get on quite well as well. Yeah, yeah, we get, uh, we get on really there's well. A, in the networking event, you guys were, no, he's the number one broker. No, he's the number one broker. Yeah. Um, and it's mad because there's a massive overlap between our social media and some people we know as well. But it's fine. If we were like snapping at each other or little shots every now and then it wouldn't it's just it's not a good look for anyone and like I say there's enough people to go around so yeah there's that but I think also you have to the mentality of being able to learn from your competitors yeah, like, yeah. I'm not perfect you're not perfect no one is but doesn't mean your, your competitors aren't perfect either but at the same time is they're probably doing something that you're not at the same time you're probably doing something that they're not yeah that's you, you know there's always things you can learn and pick up from other people but you've got to be open to doing it as opposed to saying why is he more successful than me at this part? There must be something he's doing, you know, dodgy or whatever. You've got to be open to the fact that someone's doing something better than you. That's an Asian community thing. As soon as someone starts <laughs> making a bit of money, I was probably doing fraud. Probably drugs. But someone, <laughs> um, who came on this podcast? Motul. I don't know if you know Motul. Oh, yeah, he came on this podcast and he said he was starting to make money and people would start saying uh, he's a drug dealer. That's mad. And if you know Motul, he's like one of the most down-to-earth people. It's happened to my sister, so... My sister, her husband, who I'm a business partner, 
when they started going on a few holidays and he started running loads of businesses. So he's got like, I think, nine or ten takeaways. And my mum was like, listen, you've got, you've got to slow down because people now ask him questions about how he's got the money for all this. And I'm like, he's got the money because he's investing money from his other businesses into this business. Tell people to shut up. Like, it's, but, it's very short, small-minded. But I think it's the whole Asian community think of what will people say. Yeah. And if we just tend to, or the older generation anyway, just tend to go worst case scenario. It's worst case scenario. And also, I think as, as, a, as a people, as a brown people, we're all very skeptical. So if it seems, you know, if it seems too good to be true, we like it is, you know. So if if I told you a story of a property of a property investor who's done like twelve deals in a, in a year, you, we and you know it's possible because we're we're in the business. From the outside in, someone would be like, nah, no chance. He's doing something dodgy. It's interesting because I did a viewing once. It was about two or three years ago, mm-hmm. and um, it was an Asian couple, and it was a rundown house, and they were buying on a mortgage and. They said, what's the price? I think it was at 350, 375. Yeah. But I said, you got to literally put your offer in today because yeah. guaranteed someone will buy it with cash. It's one of them run down, do it up as or whatever you want to call it. Um, and he's like, how do people have so much cash? I was like, no, they do. Mm-hmm. And then um, I just explained to him that like, people accumulate or make money or invest and they have cash ready specifically for these moments. People have funds ready yeah. specifically if a run down property comes, we're going to snap it. Yeah. And- after this, well, you don't know what you don't know. So, like, I know a friend of mine, no interest in property, but then I recommended he go on a course, like a, a, only a weekend thing, and he went, and now he's like, oh my God, I get it. Like, so now I understand why these people are making all this money, because they're doing X, Y, and Z. I think that's another reason it's important to go networking. I know you keep going back to networking, but you meet people who are doing so many different things. Yeah. Like, for example, if you meet Motu, he's semi-retired, because he's made his money. TJ is half retired and he gives a lot in charity yeah. and he's pledged to give one million TJ, one million pound, remember, yeah. in 12 months. Keep him accountable, yeah. Yeah, he's only <laughs> on 30 grand. Uh, but again, he's able to give that. Um, Davinda as well, she's doing quite well. Her portfolio is massive. Yeah. You've got Ted who's bought 15 properties in like nine months. You've got Alfred Zade who's raised like over a million pound in a short space of time. Alfred Zade buys a house without the funds being there because he knows he'll raise the money for investors within 30 days. Nope. Like his mindset is, it will happen. And where sometimes I'm, because I, I help some on some of his deals, I'm like, you sure you get the money? He's like, yeah. It's not a question of if. Like, it's just when I'll do yeah. it. Like so, it's keeping an open mind because everything is possible now. No, it's hundred percent agree. And I think you have to broaden your horizons in anything you do. You have to broaden your horizons, and that's why they say come out of your comfort zone. Because when you come out, you just see different things. It's the same as travel. You go to different cultures. Yeah. You see... I've missed out. I've been to Pakistan. <laughs> but again, you see people in Pakistan the way they live. I haven't seen it. I've not been there. Uh, what I realize about Pakistan is, right, when they don't have a lot of money, so I've, I've, got, I've got relatives in the cities and also in, in the bins, yeah? The ones who are in the bin, they, they're more creative because they have to be. They invent, they invent little things that... I'm like, that's mad. Like, that should be a, like a worldwide... That should be on sale on Amazon or something. They, they come up with all these little tricks because that the environment breeds creativity because they have to be creative to live you know you have the street sellers with those bikes that heat up their boiling water to give the sweet corn and stuff and you wouldn't have that here you know so yeah you've got to keep an open mind because things are possible like rent to rent in properties for example now i never knew what rent to rent was was subletting isn't it (laughs) but and people think it's people found upon yeah yeah, found upon it's illegal it's subletting why would a landlord even let you do that but then you know it's possible because there's people making so much cash flow from it and actually, I would argue that 
as a strategy, that's probably more rewarding in the short term than buying a house and keeping yeah. it 20 years is. To be honest, it depends in some areas because in some areas where there's no capital appreciation, you're making more money from rent to rents or rent to SAs um, than a normal buy to let. Yeah. In London, it's a bit different because the house prices are still going up. Mm-hmm. Or th- I think they will go up in the long term. But if you go maybe Liverpool, maybe even Wales, where the yeah. capital appreciation is, isn't as much. Like rent to rent, I would always say try and do a rent to rent, but try and add an option on the end of it as well. So then at least your rent is going towards something. But it's like, why would a landlord ever agree to that? Have you asked a landlord? <laughs> like, I think landlords prefer that because yeah. someone's trying to make money and generate some model that works. Yeah. So they know that this person's affordability is generally going to be there and he has to look after the house. Otherwise, he's, yeah. um, otherwise, if he doesn't look after the house, he's not going to make money. Absolutely. But the problem is, once this becomes more mainstream, the government come on top of it. I saw a thing with something in the press last week that they're trying to... They're trying to put something in that if it's a rent-to-rent, who actually is responsible? Is it the operator or is it the landlord? So once the government gets involved, things will regulate this. Yeah, government needs to stay out of it. Yeah. They've done the same thing with essays. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a 90 days. 90 day, 90 day rule in London, um, or service accommodation. Um, but to be honest, I'm like a, not a big conspiracy theorist, but this whole interest rate... Skeptical you are. I'm very skeptical. <laughs> but, I always look, try and look between the lines because I don't yeah, believe yeah. the media. Um, this whole like interest rate hike and everything, I was saying before, I said there's a reason they've just pushed it up because they're pushing a lot of landlords out of the market. They're adding regulation and regulation. Yeah. I said either the government are going to buy homes or the banks are going to buy it's homes. Banks, John Lewis, oh, Lloyds Bank, yeah. I think John Lewis have said they want to become landlords. There's a few others who want to buy, either build, new build, or just take on a lot of stock. They have the money to do it. And you know they they don't need smaller landlords with smaller portfolios in the business. I think that's that's where that's what they're cutting out. People ask me about what do you think about the market. I think I don't. I'm not an economist, but one thing I will say is that a lot of the smaller investors, you know, one property who've been on the course, they'll be pushed out because they can't afford or their portfolio can't handle the the ups and downs. Really, they can't handle that, and the regulation is too much for them. In Wales now. The, they, they don't call them tenants anymore. They have to, I think they're called, um, not guests, something else. But basically, there's more landlord reform in Wales. You basically can't get a tenant out anymore. Um, what's, your, what's your tips for someone who wants to get finance? Because you normally deal in property investing. That's my day job, yeah. That's actually yeah. what I do. I've not mentioned not, it. <laughs> not a podcast guest. No. So um, in terms of getting finance, one thing is plan ahead. So what I mean by that is whether it's residential or buy-to-let, you know, Six months before you want to buy a house, get your paperwork in order, keep your bank statements clean, maybe set up a separate account for your deposit. If you're going to separate, set up a separate savings account for your deposit, make sure you have the statements to be monthly. If you do it annually, you won't get a bank statement and you can't prove you've got the money. Um, also, with a deposit, a common mistake or common issue I have is proof of funds and source of funds. So proof is, do you have the money? Yes, here's my bank statement. Source of funds is, where's that money come from? Now, this is where it's an issue sometimes because, you know, I'll give you an example from my own kind of thing. So I bought a house a couple of years ago. My sister lent me £10,000, gifted it, sorry, as, a, as part of the deposit. She had that from an insurance payout six years ago and it was sat in her savings. The lender was kind of okay with it, but the solicitor was like, we want to see six years worth of bank statements showing it's been in there. It's not been transferred back and forth and it's still that money. Um, so yeah, when you start tracking back, where's the money come from? It can cause problems. 
like so people will say, well, my, I'm going to get a gift for my uncle. That's fine. Where's your uncle got that money from? So source of deposit is really important. Second thing is credit vials. There's two types of people, right? There's people who will say, Shaz, got bad credit. They're a bit embarrassed, got bad credit. Not sure if I can get finance. Or there's people who will be like, my credit's fine. But often you find it's the opposite. So the ones who are kind of worried, they've got maybe a late payment on a phone bill. Most lenders will ignore that. Most lenders will ignore stuff that's unsecured. And then what you find is the ones who are like, oh, my credit's absolutely fine. They've got a CCJ for a parking ticket like six months ago. Now, parking tickets, pay them, honestly. In this country, it's so easy to give someone a CCJ, right, without you, know, without you even kind of having any involvement. And that ruins your financial prospect for the next six years. So for the sake of 35 quid, 60 quid, just pay it and then argue with it afterwards. If you do get a CCJ, I believe if you pay it within 30 days, it, it doesn't come on your file. Um, but yeah, keep your credit tidy. So yeah, documents, credit file. And I did a post about this, but I think just being decisive with your decision making doesn't mean being quick, but it means actually making a decision. I saw the post yesterday. Yeah, it's just like, I speak to some investors and it's like, okay, I've discussed it with a business partner, that's fine. Is this really the best rate? It, and it winds me up sometimes. I'm like, nah, I'll just give you the second best rate just to have a laugh. Like, of course it's the best rate, you know, it's a, obviously like... I hate them questions. It's, it's lack of trust from day yeah. one, you know, but that, um, and the thing is, by the time they're dallying and figuring out what they want to do, the rate's gone, or the product probably sold. So just, it's not speed, it's being clinical and with your, with your decisions, just make a decision and let everyone get on with their work. So those are the things. Um, it's quite a useful tip, actually. Always um, useful, always valuable. Yeah, no, but you have to give value. Yeah. Uh, we've got a quick fire round. Oh, great. If I can find the questions. Okay, favorite food? Favorite food? Um, oh, Nando's. I've just been. I went to Westfield, Nando's. I know you don't go on a holiday much, but favorite holiday destination? Uh, Turkey was actually really good. I'm not I'm not Dubai team, I'm Turkey team. Relaxing over anything else. I'm Qatar team and I've never been yet. You've been to the airport, you're like, this is amazing. <laughs> I should have been to the airport. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a massive fan of Dubai. Uh, it's a decent place to go for like four or five days, but I just think it's so fake. I need I like authentic things. It's it's that, but also for me anyway, it's the um, for me a holiday is just having a proper chill. You can't do it in Dubai. You got to do activities. So Turkey, you can just relax. Favorite football player? Ryan Giggs. He was until he retired. I know his personal stuff is very very controversial, but Ryan Giggs. Because oh, you're Welsh as well. That's that's more the reason. The yeah, Ryan Giggs against Arsenal, that one goal sticks out. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I'm a United fan. Ryan Giggs was good, but... What, what is the me. opinion of Ryan Giggs in England? Because it's interesting in Wales, everyone still, still thinks he's a good hero, but in England? Um, I don't think they like him because of all his Because antics. of personal issues, yeah. Because yeah. he's, he's been on a mad one for about 10 he years. He ruined now. his legacy, isn't he, a little bit? Yeah. So he's not, and obviously, he doesn't come out as a pundit or nothing. Mm. Um, yeah. As a player, yeah. I think as a player, everyone likes him. Okay. But as a person, everyone hates him. <laughs> Bad. Not Gareth Bell. Nah. Too old. Um, favorite book. Ooh. Um, I, I I've listened to a lot of audiobooks. Um, the one that recently I would say is my favorite recently is Alex Hormozzi, uh, Million Dollar Offers. For anyone doing sales and how to construct an offer, that, that book's spot on. Um, you read? Oh, you've you heard an audio book? How to. How to make a, a six-figure business. Yeah. How did you find that? 
Uh, so I, uh, yeah, I consumed the book, audiobook that it was really good. One of the reasons it was good is it's written now, so it's talking about Canva and spreadsheets, things like relevant. And it's good that it's from a brown perspective. There's certain things in there. Um, Nafisa, the, the author, she's really direct and she's not afraid of saying things that perhaps other people would be like, oh, I don't want to say it on a book. Talk about privilege, uh, talks about how to follow up with people. Like there's so many um, things you can action, actionable thing, tips in the book. I felt that book had value in, in probably every single sentence. I've asked her to come on a podcast. I'm, I'm working on it. I followed up once. <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, but because I read that book. Yeah. Um, and I think she's given value everywhere. Um, yeah. And her book's very decisive, clinical. I'm not sure. It's, right yeah, words. clinical. It's good. It's, it's, it's to the point. It's no fluff. Yeah. There's enough about her background to make her legit. But the rest is just, you know, value, yeah. value, value. Uh, favorite day of the week? Mondays. That's it. Got it. <laughs> um, Shaz, thank you very much for coming no on. Worries, man. Thanks for having uh, me. All the way from Wales. International. Uh, hope you have a safe journey back. And where can people find you? Uh, Instagram at where's Shaz, double S in the middle. And what's the next networking event you're going to? Uh, I'm going to the Savoy's event, but that's a guest list only, unfortunately. So, yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, thank you very much. And we'll put Shaz's socials in the description. If you want to follow him, and if you want to, make sure you do follow him. Um, getting to 10k soon. Yes. On Instagram. <laughs> Thank you very much, Shaz. No worries. Take care.